Well, good morning again. It is great to have you worshiping with us here at Faith Bible Church. We are going to transition back into our series in Ezra. We've had a little bit of a break for uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. We're going to now be looking back at the book of Ezra. And in that, what I'd like to do, you'll probably notice up on the screen, ET Phone Home. It's just sort of a fun way of talking about what is transpiring in chapter 8 of the book of Ezra. We are looking in a moment at a group of people who are going to be returning back to Jerusalem from having been placed in exile in Babylonia. And again, for those of you that are newer, I'm going to take a couple of minutes and lay the context of what's going on so that as we dive into chapter 8, you can have the foundation as to why what is happening is happening. With it, um, you should, in your bulletins, have a timeline of the book of Ezra. And I'd like to kind of show you where we are going to be. I have a neat little laser pointer that I was given, so I'm pretty excited about this. I'm going to do my best not to overuse it. Um, but in a moment, we're going to be talking about Ezra chapter 8. And that is right here. Now you'll notice that right here isn't all of this. And in order un to understand why we're right here, I'm going to take a moment, I'm going to just go over a little bit of this as to why we are right there in Ezra chapter 8. The big thing that I want to encourage you in with the book of Ezra, it essentially is about the, pro the provision of God and the restoration of God's people because he is faithful to those whom he knows and loves. Now the challenge in this though is prior to this, God's people were taking a little bit of God and a whole lot of the world and saying, we're fine, we are okay, it doesn't matter. And a prophet by the name of Isaiah began to talk to the people of God and say, here's the thing. If you continue this way, if you continue sort of a little bit of God and a whole lot of the world, I'm going to tell you that there's going to be a time when God is going to send you into exile. He's going to bring about a king. He's going to remove you from your home. He's going to destroy the place of where you worship. And the next thing you know, you're going to be led into captivity. And you would think, as I've said before, that when Isaiah says this, the people of God would go, hmm, perhaps we need to do something about this. But what do they do? They continue ignoring the message of Isaiah. So lo and behold, Isaiah comes and goes. It's not that it occurs a day after, a week after, a year after, or even 10 years after. It's hundreds of years after. And people were thinking that perhaps Isaiah didn't know what he was talking about, but what we understand and realize is, is what God says he will do, he will do. And lo and behold, an individual by the name of Nebuchadnezzar comes along and conquers the people of God in 586 B.C., not only are the people of God conquered, but then they are now taken out of their land and placed into exile in a foreign land known as Greater Babylonia. Interestingly enough, God also uses the prophet Jeremiah, which I'll talk about right here, 
to tell the people of God that you will be in exile for 70 years. Now think about that for a minute. You're going to go into exile, but it's going to be 70 years. There's two ways to look at this. 70 years is a long time, isn't it? But also, 70 years is the time when God is going to say, but I'm still with you. I still care about you. And I'm going to bring about a means by which you will come home. My prayer, for lack of a better word, my hope for you, is that from that exile and then returning home, your hearts will turn or have turned to me. Lo and behold, people look and they wonder. The next thing you know, Nebuchadnezzar is in control of the area that's around them. But also in Isaiah, it's stated that there's going to be another king and another kingdom that will overthrow the Babylonian rule. These are the kings of Persia. And so in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar conquers the people of God, sends them into 70 years of exile. But as he has said in prophecy, the Persian or Medo-Persian empire begins with the conquering of Nebuchadnezzar in and around 550. And here is where King Cyrus decrees that the people of God can return to their home. The people of God return to their home under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and there's 43,000 approximately people that now are going back to their homeland. They begin to reconstruct the temple, which is essentially the core of their worship. We discover there that in that, they first rebuild the altar, and then they begin to reconstruct the temple. Just as they do, a group of people begin to say, hey, we notice that you're reconstructing the temple. Let us help you out here. Let us give you the resources that we have. And you would think that in that, the people of God would say, hey, that sounds great. More people, more resources, less time. Sounds wonderful. Let's do it. But the problem there is, is the people of that group that come to the people of God are the individuals before that were leading them astray. And so what do they do? Well, Zerubbabel and essentially his leadership turn to them and they say, thank you, but no. We're going to listen to what God has told us and God has told us to rebuild this temple and it is ours to do and ours alone. Interestingly enough, those individuals that were oh so friendly in the beginning saying, hey, let us help you, become the greatest adversaries to the rebuilding of the temple. And for years, the rebuilding of the temple stalls. Estimates are anywhere from 16 to 20 years it takes to rebuild that temple. But we see the faithfulness of God that he is able. And they do. And they praise God for it. The story continues, and now we jump from the rebuilding all the way to this time where Ezra, the scribe or the teacher, has been called to bring back the second wave of the people of God 
to their homeland. And that's where we are. We were in chapter 7 last uh, couple weeks. We're looking now at chapter 8. And we are now essentially ready to go, ready to move, ready to lead the people of God. And everyone is excited, and they can't wait to see what's going on. They're looking back and remembering how great it was when 43,000 people returned to their homeland. It's about the numbers, isn't it? They can't wait. And the next thing you know, as they assemble for the people of God to return home, a whopping 5,000 show up. 43,000, but only five this time. And so they look, and you would think that at this moment, it would be a challenge and deflating. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. How many of you have gone through something where you're planning, you're hoping, you're excited for something? Maybe it's family, maybe it's business, maybe it's your life. Maybe you're looking back at the rewards or the excitements that have been given, and all of a sudden, as you begin to move forward with whatever it might be, and you can't wait, and you're just about ready to go, challenges come. Discouragement is there. The numbers aren't there. The multitude isn't there. Maybe you're ready, and I've seen stories where you can't wait to retire and live the golden life. And just as you retire, the next thing you know, there's an illness. Maybe you're excited. Maybe you're ready to go. You've just built your business. You can't wait to have it happen. And as you get ready to launch something else, something else occurs. And the next thing you know, you're discouraged or you're deflated. What do you do? Friends, there's all kinds of ways in which we look in life and we see those moments where we feel as if we're just ready to move forward and then challenges come. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is this, that when the task ahead seems daunting and dangerous, how can I move forward with confidence? I want to ask, and I don't need to know, but how many of you have gone through something or you have seen something that's ahead and you're going, I don't know how in the world we're going to get through this? What do you do? Do you just fold and say, well, I guess we're just going to stay here? Do you just say, well, we're going to give it the old college try? Or is there a way, as we look at some of the keys in Ezra chapter 8, that we can be encouraged in who we are as God's people to move forward trusting who God is and the provision that he gives, knowing that when God calls us to something, he will complete it, despite what may or may not be going on around us. We're in Ezra chapter 8. I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to read a little bit of this. And then I'm going to lay essentially some of the foundational aspects. We're looking essentially at the numbers of people that are returning under the leadership of Ezra with the second return of God's people. And that's where we pick up. These are the family heads and those registered with them who came with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. And then he goes in and he gives a list of fun names that I will pronounce a few and I'll do my best. And then we can read, but I want to highlight a few of the things that are going on there. 
Of the descendants of Phineas, Gershom, and the descendants of Ithamar, Daniel, the descendants of David, Hattush, the descendants of Shechaniah, and the descendants of Pharosh, Zechariah, and with him were registered 150 men. And we continue on down the list. Now, first and foremost, if you remember back, sometimes we look and we just read these lists and they're just a bunch of names that are old that we can't pronounce. But my encouragement to you is is that there's a reason as to why there's this listing. And what I want you to think about is those are people whom God knows and God loves. And if you remember back to a sermon a long time ago when we looked at the first list, in a graduation, when you see your son's or daughter's name on the list, what does that mean to you? They're included. They're part of it. Wow. This is amazing. And so the first thing that I want to show you is the purpose of this list is to demonstrate to the people of God those whom returned and his providence in encouraging them and allowing them to return back to their land and be encouraged and established in who they are. But also what I want to show you in this list is the next uh, kind of purpose behind it. When you take the individuals that were listed, and ladies and children, I'm sorry, but this time back in their culture, they only listed the males. So when you take those individuals and you add women and children, estimates say that the amount of people that returned were 5,000. Now, if you remember back on the first return, it was 43,000. And earlier I said it's all about the numbers, isn't it? Friends, what I want to tell you is simply this. Oftentimes, we look at the temporal around us and think that perhaps God is doing something big. But when those numbers aren't there, but yet God is doing what he has promised, we begin to think, is God not doing what he should be doing? Only 5,000 people show up. Only 5,000 people return. Now why is this? Some commentaries say that first and foremost, as the quote-unquote people of God who had left and returned, those that were still in exile stayed, they became more comfortable in the world that they were living in. They didn't want to return. They didn't want to go back to the heart of who God was and is. They had become comfortable, complacent, and said, why should I go back? Why should I go back because I'm comfortable here? But yet God is calling them back, calling them back to him. And the reason that I bring that up, friends, is sometimes we can become comfortable And yet God might be calling us to something greater. And sometimes it might mean that not everyone is going to come along. But if God is calling, the question is, will you follow? First thing and foremost, as we look at verses 1 through 14, what can we do when the task ahead is daunting and dangerous. The first thing that I want to encourage you in, and I think this is what is going on 
in this chapter is we can take account of what the Lord has provided and be grateful for it. We could either sit and say, gosh, at the first return there was 43,000, but now we only have five. Or we can say, this is what God has said, and God has brought 5,000 people. This is what God wants. This is what God gives. Thank you for what you've provided. Because oftentimes, what we need to be reminded of is, is it's not us and in our own strength, but it's God is the one who was doing these things. God is the one who is providing. And if he brings 43,000, then praise God for it. If he brings 5,000, then praise God for it. If he brings five, but yet it is his will, then praise God for it. So friends, whatever it is that you might be going through, one of the things that I would encourage you in is look around and take stock of what God has provided you. What has he given to you? What is the blessing that you have? And if it's not what you think or not what you expect or not what you demand, but yet God has given it to you, do you thank him for it? Or did you begrudgingly go forward and say, but it's not enough. I need more. And then just as we get ready to go, just as the people of God are ready to move forward and return to Jerusalem, we turn to verse 15. And Ezra writes, I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. Great, everybody's here, we're ready to rumble, we're ready to move forward, can't wait, we're just going to continue on the journey, which is going to last several months to return home. But we've got the momentum, we're ready to rumble, everything's awesome, but, and that's where we are in this next verse, when I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. Big deal. There's no Levites. We got 5,000 people. Let's keep moving forward. We've got what we need to do. Why worry about it? Well, here's what I want to encourage you in. First, we're to take account of what the Lord has provided us with and be grateful for it. But then also, friends, we're to wait upon God to provide the resources that we need. Yes, be grateful for what God has given but there might be times where something else is needed in order to draw closer or bring about what God has asked of us. And the reason that I bring this up is who is familiar with the Levites and why were they worried? No big deal. Levites, we don't need them. Absolutely you need them. If you're going back to establish the worship of God and build back what was there and bring honor to him, the Levites were the priestly tribe. They were the ones who were in charge of the temple and the tabernacle. You can't do it without them. They are core to the establishment of worship for the people of God. So if they come forward and they realize we don't have any Levites, there's two options. You could just say, well, we've got what we've got. We're going to move forward. We're going to press ahead. We don't need to worry. Or you can look back and you can say, you know what? I think what God is telling us right now is, is that we're going to wait. We're going to trust. We're going to look at what he provides. And when he provides it, then we'll move forward. 
So the first thing I want to show you, and I'm just going to read this um, out of the complete uh, who's who in the Bible, is to give a little context as to why the Levites were so important. The Levites were the descendants of Levi, third son of Jacob, and thus made up of one of the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel. Their name connoted the notion of joining or attaching. They were attached to Aaron's service, who was himself a Levite, for the administration of the tent meeting or tabernacle. Their initial duties were preserving the holiness of the camp. Friends, what's going on here is in order for the people of God to be able to go back and truly establish and maintain the worship that was needed by God, you cannot do it without the Levites. And so watch this. They go... And we look in verse 16, so I summoned Eleazar, Ariel, Shema, Elaniah, Jerob, other hard names, okay? You guys have fun with that, don't you? I do too. But here's what I want to show you. Let's go get the Levites. Let's go and see what we need. But what I want you to pick up on is this. As they do all of this, in verse 19, or sorry, right before the end of 19, it totals 18 men. And then they continue on, and it totals 20 men. Mathematicians, what's 18 and 20? 38. Why is that important? Not a lot. They go back and they search for the Levites so that they can bring about worship. And what they come up with is 38 of them. And so friends, when you wait upon God to provide the resources you need, don't be discouraged when the numbers aren't that great. Because here's what I want to tell you. 38 Levites are not enough to continue with the worship that was needed because the Levites would weekly change over their duties in the tabernacle and in the temple that they were trying to rebuild. It's not enough. Physically looking on paper, looking at what is there, it's not going to add up. And here's where I want to go with you. Oftentimes in our lives, when we go through something challenging, we begin to add it up right, on a spreadsheet. We begin to look at doctor's reports. We begin to look at finances. We begin to look at plan. And there's nothing wrong with that. But what I want to tell you is this. The greatest time when God's moves is when you look at those plans and you realize there's absolutely no way on paper that this is going to work out. There's no way this can be accomplished. Because the numbers aren't there. But guess what? The hand of God is on Ezra. From chapter 7 through the end, we hear the hand of God being on Ezra eight times, seven or eight times. Don't miss that. The hand of God was on Ezra. And so friends, what I want to encourage you in is this. If the hand of God is upon you, then you can move forward with confidence that he will accomplish what it is that he has for you to do. And don't be discouraged when the numbers aren't that great. 
We continue on, and interestingly enough, we see essentially that 38 Levites come forward. Now, why is this? The other part of this, friends, is that the Levites could not own land. They were the Levitical tribe, and essentially their inheritance, their due, was the temple, the administration of it. So they did not have an opportunity to own land. Why is that important? Well, the Levites were sent to exile, and they actually began to what? Have lives, have land, have life. And so when Ezra and the leaders went to them and said, hey, we want you to return. We want you to return back to God and help with worship. Some of the Levites looked and they said, why? We got it all here. We get land. We've got provisions. Why would we return and risk everything to go back to something that's unknown, knowing that when we do it may or may not work out, but I guarantee you that we're not going to have the land that we have today. And you have to remember that in those days, land was blessing. Land was prosperity. Land was provision. Land was protection. Land was everything. And so why do I bring this up? Sometimes, friends, when God calls us to something, we want to stay where we're comfortable. We want to be where we know that we're provided for. And we're not willing to take the risk and leave something behind when God calls us to a deeper act of worship. And that's why only 38 showed up. It's not that there were only 38 Levites left. It was that only 38 of them were willing to call and move forward with God, with what God was asking. Kind of a bummer, isn't it? But Ezra knows that the hand of God is upon them. We continue down the story. And there in verse 21, Ezra does something. I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it on my own way. We're going to make this happen. We're going to make it work. But no, friends, this is the next thing that I want to encourage you in. First and foremost, take account of what the Lord has provided you with and be grateful for it. Second of all, when you're moving forward and asking God for what to do, wait upon him to provide the resources you need, and when he does, don't be discouraged when in your estimate, the resources aren't that great. And then the next part, trust the Lord and make sure that your walk matches your talk. Verse 21, thereby the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all of our processions. Verse 22, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him but his great power is against all who forsake him. Don't miss this, friends. This is the quintessential piece right here in Ezra chapter 8. Ezra goes to the king who, if we look back, has already provided everything that they need. If you look back to chapter 7, essentially through God, he uses the king to provide all of the fundamental pieces for the people of God to return back. So here's the deal. Ezra goes to the king and he says, we're fine. We don't need an army. We'll be okay. God's going to provide for us. 
And he says it. And that's where it's important to trust God and make sure that your talk matches your walk. Why? Because as they're looking forward, as they're looking at what they have, as they're looking at the journey ahead, as they're looking at the challenges that are before them, it would be easy to go forward and say, you know what? As I'm kind of looking at this, I'm not really sure that we're going to be okay, and I don't know that God is great enough to provide for us, and I'm not really sure that his hand is 100% on us. So do me a favor. You've already given us all this stuff. Could you just give us an army of 10,000 soldiers so we'd be safe as we travel? That's what's going on here. Don't miss this. Ezra looks, and he says, essentially, right there, you know what, I've already told the king that we don't need an army because God's hand is on us. And so I'm going to trust that. And I'm not going to renege on my, on my word. Why is that important? Friends, how often will we go forward and say certain things? Oh, God will do this or God will do that. But when it gets hard, when it's challenging, when the numbers aren't there, when physically things seem impossible, when we don't appear to have a way, do we continue to trust that God has said and what he will do, he will do? Or do we renege and say, you know what, I don't know that my talk is going to match my walk and I'm going to take a little bit of God and a whole lot of the world to make it happen. I love this part. And friends, I want you to put yourself in Ezra's position right now. He's been called to lead a group of people back on an arduous journey to a place of which he is not wholly familiar. He's read about it. He knows about it. He loves God. He knows that that's where he's called. But he's leaving comfort. He's leaving what he knows to go to a land because God has told him to do so. And when he does, he doesn't get the numbers that were there before. And then he doesn't even have Levites to help out. And when he asks for the Levites, only 38 of them come forward. I don't know about you, but if I'm planning and I'm marketing and I'm doing this, I might look at it and say, you know, my market plan has failed. It's just not going to work. It's just not going to happen. We just don't have the numbers. We just shouldn't go. Maybe we should stay. Maybe it's better for us here. Maybe God didn't really say what he uh, meant or meant what he said. Maybe God isn't real. But the gracious hand of God was upon Ezra. And so friends, in those moments when it doesn't seem to work, when it doesn't seem to add up, my encouragement to you is to trust the Lord and make sure that your walk matches your talk. I'm not saying you have to always be joyful. I'm not saying that you can't have fear. I'm not saying that you cannot admit that you're afraid. But what I want to tell you is simply this. Does your walk match your talk? And friends, lovingly right now, what I want to encourage you, in, particularly with church in America, is this. I think right now, I think the world is looking at us and saying, asking, watching, wondering if our walk matches our talk. 
We continue on. And we see that not only do they fast, okay? And real quick, just fasting, it's a means by which you remove some form of provision in order to depend more on God. For us, essentially, it's the Holy Spirit. We depend upon the Holy Spirit. Back then, yes, they're depending upon God. Holy Spirit eternally exists, okay? But also we know that the Holy Spirit, what? Descends on the people of God in Acts chapter two, okay? And so not only do they say, we're gonna wait on God, but they stop providing necessary things that they need for a period to wait on him. Verse 23, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Friends, one of the things that I want to encourage you in, if you're in a moment where you're wondering what to do, if you're in a moment where there's a challenge ahead of you, if you're in a moment where you are sitting there saying that road ahead looks hard, I might encourage you to take some time and fast and pray. Maybe you uh, remove food for a little while. Maybe you stop doing uh, X or Y. Maybe you go on a water fast for a period of days. And what you do there is essentially you're depending upon the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and answer. And sure enough, we see we fasted and petitioned our God about this. And he answered our prayer. Then I set apart 12 of the leader, leading priests together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 other brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out them 650 talents of silver and then obviously the list of the provisions that are there. This is what we have and so friends, sometimes we need to trust the Lord and make sure that your walk matches your talk. And the story continues on as we read through chapter 8. And we come to this interesting part in verse 31, and that's this. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. We were ready to go. We did it. And don't miss this. The hand of our God was on us. And he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested three days. God got them there because God's hand was on them. Because Ezra trusted and remained faithful to what God had asked. Verse 33, on the fourth day of the house of our God, we weighed the silver and the gold and the sacred articles unto the hands of Merimoth, son of Uriah, the priest Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him. And so were, guess what? The Levites. And he lists out who was there. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Friends, they arrive, the hand of God is on them, and they rest. Don't miss that. 
They rested three days. And so one of the other things that I want to encourage you in as you look with something that's daunting and dangerous, that you can rest in the Lord and know that his hand is upon you. Sometimes it doesn't mean movement. Sometimes it just means resting. One of the greatest things that I always do is I go home at night, and I'll be honest with you, there's nine million things that are going on in the church and in our community. And it is overwhelming. But I lay my head on the pillow. Some nights I sleep well, other nights I don't. Kelly will attest to that. But I rest and know that as I sleep, God is working for his kingdom. And it's not just for me, it's for you as well. When you fall asleep, know that God is working for God's people. I'll throw out Psalm 121. God never, ever sleeps nor rests. He's on the job 24-7, 365. Yes, for those of you that worry, 366 days a year when it's leap year. (laughs) He's always working. He is always providing He is always moving. And so friends, rest in the Lord and know that his hand is upon you. Oftentimes, the answer that you need is when you rest. And then, watch this. When the answer comes, what do we do? And this is one of the greatest things that I want to encourage you in. Verse 35. Then the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 male lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's orders to the royal satraps and to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, who then gave assistance to the people and to the house of God. God answers their prayers, gets them back, begins to establish them. And what do they do? They rejoice. They worship. They praise God for the provisions that he's given. And so friends, the final thing that I want to encourage you in with this is is that when we have a daunting, dangerous task and God does these things and he answers the prayer, we are to rejoice in the Lord and give thanks and praise to him for providing for us. I want to ask you a question. How many of you have gone through something in your life as you were heading into it, you were like, yeah, there's no way we're getting through this? Okay. E.T., phone home, okay, kind of, I know, like, I'm just trying to solidify this. E.T., obviously, is the extraterrestrial. He's stuck on Earth, and he's got to get home. And at the beginning, you look like, there's no way it's going to happen. And the whole story is about getting him home. Well, same thing here. Getting God's people home. And he does. And he provides. When you look back, how many of you see the hand of God? And so friends, when you look back, look forward. If the hand of God was there before, the hand of God will be here now. The question is, 
Are you holding on to the hand of God? We look at this story and we see Ezra's courage and Ezra's strength. And so what I want to leave you with this morning, essentially the summary is this, that God will provide you with everything you need to do with what he has given you to do. Simply rest, rely, trust, and rejoice in him. Give it to God. Let him be the one that demonstrates his faithfulness, his courage, and his greatness. When the task ahead is hard, remember God will provide you with everything that you need. And your job is simply to rest, trust, and rely upon and rejoice in him. Let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you for this book of Ezra. Father, we thank you for the Old Testament. Sometimes we look and we wonder what's the purpose behind it, yet we see your hand all the way through. We see how you provide for your people, how much you care. Father, how your heart is for them to know you, to worship you in spirit and in truth, to lay aside the things of the world, to really look to you for their provision, their joy, their protection, their guidance, and their direction. And Father, thank you that in that, that you remain faithful to the people of God and you remain faithful to us. Father, we all admit that at times we go astray. We all admit at times we bring the world in and we begin to look at it and maybe trust on what it might be able to do. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace, which is new each and every morning. Thank you for the fact that you love us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you that when we come to you and we say, God, we need you, that you hear our prayers and that you're working on our behalf. And so in those moments where there might be challenge ahead, whatever it is that we might be going through, Father, when the numbers don't add up, when things don't look right as far as we can see, may we realize indeed that you are there and that you are working on our behalf. And so may we continue to move forward looking to you for your provision, your guidance, your direction. Father, in those moments where we don't know where to go, maybe we rest, maybe we wait, maybe we fast. Trusting indeed that you are bringing all things to, uh, to fruition because you are a good God who loves your people. Lord, with that, may that bring confidence to us as we go forward with our days. As Lord, as we may be in challenges right now, we might be coming out of one, we might be going into one. Father, we might not have them, but we might remember one. And in all of those things, may we look and realize indeed just how much you care for us and how you provide for us. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.